Okay, there's no long journey in this chapter like there is in chapter 12 that takes years, maybe months, coming from Ur of the Chaldeans or when uh, Abram goes over to Egypt. There's no soap opera event. There's no interacting with other people like in chapter 12 when he loses his wife to another man while he's staying in Egypt. There's no interaction in, uh, with his nephew Lot like there is in chapter 13. There's no military exploit like we see in chapter 14 as he overtakes other kings and recovers captured peoples and possessions. Instead, all we have in this chapter are a couple private conversations, a couple conversations between him and God, conversations that take place no more than about 24 hours. Very little happens in a very short amount of time, but those conversations are so significant, and what comes out of them are so significant for us. An entire passage of Scripture is devoted to them, because what comes out of them is what goes to the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God. It's a really important chapter. You have to master this chapter personally if you're a Christian. It's equally important, however, for you to master it because this is the chapter that will separate the Christian faith from all other faiths. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other way of life will tell you, here's what you have to do if you want to have a good life. Here's what you have to do if you want to be a good person. Here's what you have to do if you want to escape the evil in this world. Here's what you have to do if you want to have a relationship with a heavenly being, a divine being, or here's what you have to do if you want to become an enlightened being. Every other philosophy, every other religion lays out for you, here's the road, here's what you must do, here are the things you must not do, and then here's all the various little checkpoints that there are so that you can have a sense of how well you're doing or how well you're not doing. The heart of Christianity is completely different. Christianity comes along and says, you cannot make your own way to God. You cannot make yourself good. You cannot bring yourself to any state of higher being, regardless of how hard you try. Instead, what has to happen? God himself has to make a way for him to find you. That's what you find in this chapter. It's the heart of the gospel. That's why you need to know it personally for your own life. That's why you need to know it in order to interact with anyone else. So let's dive in. Abraham in chapter 15, or Abram as he's still known before God changes his name. He's just finished in chapter 14 fighting and winning a battle against several kings. These kings had come. They had plundered several cities. They'd taken the people. They'd taken all the goods. And Abraham goes after them. He pursues them. He defeats them. And he returns the people back to their home cities. Now, the king of one of those cities, the king of Sodom, comes out to Abram. And he says, look, you keep the plunder and let me have all of the people. And Abram says, no, you keep everything. I don't want anything from you. Instead, Abram is simply content here to fulfill God's plan that he would be a blessing to the nations. You realize Abram is not from this city. He does not identify with the people from this city. He doesn't live in the city, and yet he cares about the city. And you see him actually taking the place that God's given him on this earth. You're going to live as a separate people, but your passion is actually to help the people that are around you. Part of why God's left us here as people of faith. We also are those people who care about the people around us. Chapter 14 is great. We don't have time for it, but that's what you find there, very engaged in his world. Abram does not want a blessing, does not want a reward from this king, refuses to keep anything for himself, takes no reward. He's content merely to pass along the blessing that God's given to him. 
And so God comes to him in chapter 15, verse 1, and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not. You don't need to be afraid that those kings that you've defeated, they might retaliate, they might regroup and come after you. You don't need to worry about that. I'm your shield. I'm your protection. And you don't need to regret not taking anything from them because I will, re I will reward you. I am your shield. I'll protect you. I'm also the one who will pay you back for what you've done. Your reward will be very great. And it's at that moment, as Abram is listening to these amazing, incredible promises, that he does something for the first time that we have not seen before. What Abram does in that moment is he talks to God. Now, we've seen Abram engage other people. He talks to other people. We've seen Abram call on the name of the Lord. We've seen him engage the promises that God's given. He's doing something different here. He's not engaging the promises, not acting on principles, not living out promises. What is he doing? He's talking to the promise giver. He's no longer content simply to get marching orders and go. He now actually wants to have an engagement. He's taking God seriously. He's finally on board. This is what God's been up to, bringing him out of Ur all of these years. He's creating a bond between himself and Abram, fostering this relational dynamic, and Abram now has confidence in that dynamic. And he turns around to God, and he asks a question. He says, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, God, I hear you. Your promises are nice. They're good. I appreciate the promises that you're giving. But, Lord, respectfully, I don't think they're enough. I don't have a child, which means that anything you give me is not staying with me. It's going to go to someone else. Now, what do you think about that? God just told him, here's my plan for you. I will protect you. I will reward you. And Abram's immediate response is, is, is that really the best plan that we could have? I think I see a hole in this plan, Lord. I think, is that okay? Are, are, are you allowed to ask God those kind of questions? Are you allowed to challenge him respectfully? Are you allowed to, to ask, is that really okay? Read the rest of the passage and you realize, God, realize that God interacts with him. God does not see this as a faithless question. You know, there are faithless questions. There are rhetorical questions. There are questions that doubt, well, what are you going to give me? This isn't one of those. God takes him seriously. Realize this is a question that's actually coming from faith. It takes faith seriously. It takes God seriously. It's asking for more relationship from God. It's saying to God, I have some confidence in you. I'd like to grow in confidence with you. Can I ask you a question? Can we engage here? It's a little bit like when you've said to your kids or when you've taken someone else's kids and you've said, hey, let's go do something fun. Let's go to the grandparents. Let's go to the shore. Let's go to the amusement park. Let's get in the car. They're all excited. They jump in the car. And then the trip takes a little bit longer than they expected. And after a while, you hear this little voice filtering up from the back seat, and they have a question. What's the question? Are we there yet? We all know the question. Now, you are not supposed to take that question at face value. Because if you do, you realize it's a ridiculous question. Of course we're not there. We're driving. I'm still, I haven't stopped the car. You're still in the van. Obviously, we're not there. They're not asking in that moment a geographical question. They're also not doubting you. They're not doubting your intentions. 
They're not in the back thinking to themselves, you know, they said we were going to do something fun, but uh, this is taking a really long time. I, I'm not so sure anymore. Maybe we're really going to the doctors. <laughs> Maybe we're really going to the dentist, and, and they just didn't want to tell me. I know I've offended about half of you at that moment. <laughs> Most of us don't think going to the doctors and the dentists are fun. Our kids don't, but some of you obviously think that's a cool thing to do. Our kids in that moment are not doubting. What are they doing? They're expressing trust. You only ask a question when what? When you think that you're going to get a real answer, a good answer. You only ask a question like that when you trust the other person. What are they saying to you? They're saying, I want to hear some more from you. They want reasons to trust you. And so they're asking, give me some confidence that trusting you is a good idea. They have faith that you're good, that you have good intentions. They want to grow in their faith. And the only way that you can grow in faith is by interacting with you. So they ask, are we there yet? And they want to see, how are you going to respond? Abram's asking a good question. He's saying to God, this is taking a really long time. Lord, are we there yet? He asks it because he now has faith that God will take him seriously. And he's taking God seriously, saying, God, I want to have more confidence in you. He now wants what God wants. He wants a closer connection. He wants a deeper relationship. But then you look at the content of the question. God's just promised, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And Abram asks, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, that's an odd question if you let yourself think about it, and if you start to go below the surface a little bit. What is Abram's concern here? On the surface, it sounds like he's interested in a child. And if you really, really, really want to have children of your own, it's hard to get past that. It sort of sounds like, well, Abram's just got a really bad case of baby envy here. One of the commentaries actually, I think, makes that mistake and thinks about it in that way. But the underlying reason that Abram gives has nothing to do with holding a child. What's the underlying reason? He's thinking about inheritance. He's thinking about what's going to happen after he dies. He's thinking about the future. And he's saying to the Lord, temporal things are nice. Land is nice. Wealth is nice. Victories, they're nice. But what real value are any of those things going to have if I'm simply amassing them and I'm going to pass them along to somebody else in my household? What will you give me that has a chance of not being temporary? What will you give me that's going to stick with me? What will you give? You've said that you're going to protect me and reward me, but that's merely temporal. It's temporary. Unless I have an heir, what good is that? You have to be careful here not to think too small, because if the issue is only about stuff that Abram has, possessions, a biological heir isn't any different than a non-biological heir. Abram's question is going beyond stuff. It's more personal. What will you give me that lasts? It's when you remember that this child that God has promised is more than a, what, a, a recipient of Abram's possessions. This is a child that God has said is going to make Abram into a great nation, a nation that will actually 
possess this land. And from this nation, the Lord is eventually going to bring another child, a child who's going to deliver them from evil, a Messiah who would not only rescue them, but who would rescue people from all of the nations of this earth. It's the fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back in the garden to Adam and Eve when he said, one is coming who will deliver you from sin and from evil. That's what Abram is looking for. Only if Abram has no children, that future is not going to take place. Which means that Abram will have nothing forever, regardless of what God gives to him in the present moment. And so God talks to him. Verse 4. He says, This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram's wrestling with this question. How can you protect me? How can you reward me in any meaningful way if there is no Messiah? And God says to him, let's take a walk. Let's go outside. Now look up. Look at the stars. Go ahead. Try to count them if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. You can picture Abram there outside of his tent looking up. There's no light pollution. Hard to imagine how many stars are there. You ever done this? You go outside and you see the stars and you try to count just a couple and you just give up after, you know, three, four seconds. <laughs> you think that's pointless. There's way too many of them up there. You can imagine him thinking about what God just said. We don't know. Maybe his mind drifts back to earlier, the creation story, and he starts to realize those stars didn't just make themselves. They didn't just appear. God made them out of nothing. And if God can make them out of nothing, he can make a child for me when out of nothing as well. And as he's standing out there, he decides, okay, yeah, I have no idea, Lord, how you're going to pull this off, but okay, if you say it'll happen, obviously you have a plan for how it's going to happen, and I'm in. I believe you. I trust you. And God says, that's it. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That's what it takes to have a friendship with me. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's the essence of what it means to have a friendship with God. You take him at his word. You trust him. It's probably a better way to translate that word in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew. You trust him when he says that he will make a way for you to be friends with him. When he says that there is nothing that you can do in order to make that happen for yourself. That's what Abram believed. That's what he trusted. He knew that there was nothing that he could do to give himself a child. But when God said, despite all the obstacles in the way, despite everything that you've tried all those years without success, despite your old age, despite your wife's old age, I will give you a child that will guarantee you a future of countless descendants. And Abram's, Abram said, okay, I'm in. I will live my life trusting that you will make this happen. And God says, you are righteous in my eyes. Does not mean that he was sinless. Abram sinned before, we're going to see him sin again. It means that he trusts God to make a way to protect and reward him forever, to deal with the things inside of him, the sin 
that would prevent God from protecting and rewarding him forever. And it's the same kind of trust that you see God's people exhibiting down through the rest of the ages. So when God develops the sacrificial system, you could not engage that system without trust. When you brought your offering before the Lord, you were saying to him, I trust that you will accept this offering in my place. Why? Because you said you would. It's the same thing that we say when we come to Jesus. I trust that what you did on the cross was enough to pay for everything that I've done wrong. And I trust that because you said that it would be enough. And I trust that you've credited me, given me your righteousness so that I can come to you and have a relationship with you. I take you at your word, even when I don't understand the mechanisms and I don't understand how it's possible. But because you've said that this is what's true, I will believe you. Abram believed God. God credited that belief, that trust as righteousness. That Abram now had what he needed in order to have a relationship with God. It's amazing. He now knows how to connect with God. It's amazing, but this kind of trust is not easy. Because there's an implication in this trust that, as I tease out, will make every single one of us uneasy. Every one of us will be a little nervous about that. Because in order to trust this God, it means that he has to be completely in charge of what happens in this world. In order for God to bring Abram a baby when it's not possible any other way, he has to be able to enter into this world and change things. He has to be powerful enough to shape events so that they produce the results that he wants. Theological word here is sovereign. He has to be sovereign over all of his world. And Abram believes that. It's actually loaded in that, the way that he keeps talking to God. When you see there in verses 2 and 8, and he calls God Lord God, that word Lord often in other translations will be translated sovereign. He's coming to God saying, sovereign God, the one who is in charge of everything, the one who is able to break into this world and do stuff. It's great news when God's told you he's going to give you something good. It's great news if you're Abram, you don't have a child because when God says your very own son will be your heir, you know he can make that happen. But it's also hard news because there's a flip side to that coin. If God is in charge of the good that enters into our world, he's also in charge when the good does not enter into our world. That means if you don't have that good thing that you want, it's because God has decided not to give it to you yet. That's not easy to trust somebody that, like that. How do you trust someone who could give you something good and who chooses not to? Abram was very clear that he understood this. He says back in verse 3, You have given me no offspring. Lord God, sovereign God, behind all of the secondary causes for why I don't have a child, the real reason that I don't have one is because you have decided not to give me one. For whatever reason, did not fit into God's larger plan didn't mean that the universe was out of control, that he was the victim of fate. God was still in charge, but his in-chargeness meant that Abram had to wait. And Abram had to trust. That's hard when you don't get something good that you want. And there's an element here that's even more difficult. It's also in the passage. God is in charge when you don't get good things that you want, 
God is also in charge when you get non-good things that you didn't want. He doesn't cause the non-good things, but he does allow them. And in allowing them, he's saying that he has a purpose in those things for you. And he has a purpose in those things for his kingdom. And that starts to raise the bar for trusting him. It makes it really hard to trust. You see that in the passage. Go down to verse 12. Verse 12 is another conversation that Abram and God are having. It's probably taking place the next day. Abram's arranged several animals uh, that God told him to bring. And we read in verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Did you catch it back there in verse 13? God says, know for certain. Something is going to happen beyond a shadow of a doubt. What's going to happen? Your descendants, this people from whom the Messiah will eventually come, they're going to be slaves. You think, wait, well, did, did I really read that? God, did God really say that? He does say that. And he says even more. He says it's not just going to be sort of hard slavery. It's going to be awful. They're going to be afflicted. You read in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and it starts to unpack some of the details of what afflicted means. It means that they were brutally mistreated. They were worked inhumanely. They were given impossible tasks to do, and when they failed to do those tasks, they were flogged. They had their children ripped away from them and slaughtered. Know for certain, God says, it's going to happen. Not a couple decades. Not a hundred years. 400 years. Do you see how hard trust is with a sovereign God? Yeah, okay, God's going to punish that nation. He's going to bring his people out. They're going to have great wealth. But you think, Lord God, respectfully, wouldn't it be better to just skip the 400 years? We'll take less possessions. Put yourself there. Would that be okay with you if God promised that to you? Know for certain that your grandkids will be enslaved that their children's children will still be slaves. How does that sit with you? That's what Abram is hearing, that his descendants will be slaved for, enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years, and God is unapologetic in letting him know that that's the future that he believes is best, not only for them, but for the whole world. This is an incredibly important step on the road to blessing all the nations. Trusting this God is not easy. Trusting God means that you say to him, I believe that you will do what is right in my life so that I am with you forever, even when my life is not what I want it to be right now. More than that, I trust you even when I know it's not going to be what I want it to be later, when I know that it won't be what I would choose for me or for the people that I love and care about. That's a really hard sell. To trust this God who unapologetically says, I'm in charge, even when things are bad. 
It's a hard sell in the abstract. When you talk philosophically, theologically, it's really hard when you start to think about the different details and the specifics in your own life. And this is one where I want to be really careful and really, really gentle. Because I know that in a room this size, there are people who have had horrible things in their lives. I've sat with people as they unpack horror stories of what they've experienced in life. Those are not the times or the places for talking about God's sovereignty. That is not the time when you say to someone, God works all things for good for those who love him. That's a truth in scripture, but it's not the time for the truth. It's time to listen. It's time to care in that moment. It's time to weep with those who weep. It's another truth that you find in the scripture. I've had the privilege to sit with people who just needed me to weep with them. I've wept with them both literally and figuratively. But I've also sat with people who have gotten beyond some of that rawness of what they've suffered, and they have honest questions. Questions like Abram is asking, people who want to know what's up with this. How am I supposed to trust a God who lets something like this happen? Let me give you one of the ways that you enter into that moment with someone else. Let me give you one of the ways that you enter into that for yourself. You direct your attention, their attention, to a greater suffering. Let me frame it this way. Why, why is God saying all of these things to Abram? It's because Abram started a second conversation with him. Actually, God initiates the conversation back in verse 7. It's after that whole count the stars experience, probably the next day, after God has credited Abram's trust as righteousness. God comes to Abram, verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, remember the context here. The night before, God just said, I'll give you a child. Abram trusts him, and God credits that as righteousness to him. The very next day, God comes along and says, oh, and by the way, the land goes with the child. And Abram goes, um, how, how do I know that that's actually going to happen, that I'll actually possess the land? And I love that God does not pause, sort of furrow his brow a little bit uh, and, and start to rethink the situation, then consider Abram as unrighteous. Instead, he says to Abram, bring some animals. You realize God can handle our questions. God can handle our doubts, our struggles. Honest questions do not scare him. Verse 9. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Probably means that he's left a little pathway in between the two halves. But he did not cut the birds in half. He's cut the animals in half. Apparently, that's what he's supposed to do, because verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. What is God doing? God's presence here, symbolized by the smoking pot and the flaming torch, is passing in between the pieces. And it looks utterly bizarre to us in our century. It's intensely meaningful to Abram. We're told this is God making a covenant with him. 
Or if you want to be more accurate and you go down to the level of the Hebrew, God is cutting a covenant with him. Think, okay, what's a covenant? A covenant was a binding agreement between two parties. It was very common in the social and political circles of Abram's day. It was an agreement that gave one party a reason to trust the other because the covenant ceremony is actually invoking something outside of these two individuals or these two representatives of larger groupings. So you realize that anybody can say that they'll do something, but a covenant ceremony puts a little more sting into that. It, it sort of raises this to a higher level because inherent in the covenant is an oath. You're taking an oath. And it's not simply an oath that says, no, really, I, I promised to do what I said I would do. Instead, this oath comes with a bite. It has a fancy name. It's called a self-maledictory oath. And if, like me, you are not a Latin scholar, you have to look that up. Okay, mal, meaning bad, dictory, having to do with words. What is this? This is a, an oath where you take bad words and you proclaim them against yourself. And so it's an oath that's carrying a penalty if you don't do what you promised. And by entering into this agreement, this ceremony, this covenant, you are set calling down for bad stuff to happen to you, for you to actually be harmed if you should fail to do what you said you would do. And so by walking back and forth between the pieces, you are saying very physically, sometimes you would also say verbally, May I be cut in half like these pieces, and may my blood be poured out on the ground if I fail to do everything that I've said I would do. You have an example of that later on in Scripture over in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34. The king at the time, King Zedekiah and others, had cut a covenant before the Lord. They had vowed before the Lord to free all of their slaves. Only after they did that, they had second thoughts and they re-enslaved them. And we learn there in verse 18, God's not happy about this. And he says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the covenant. God's saying, I'm going to cut them in half because they did not do what they said they would do in my presence. You did not enter into a covenant lightly. There was something else in a covenant. It wasn't just you and this other person. There was something else taking place there, something else, someone else that would hold you to your promise or someone else who would require your life if you violated your promise. If you're fluent in Harry Potterese, think here of the unbreakable vow in the half-blood prince. It's the vow that if you break it, what happens to you? You die. That's what's taking place in Genesis 15. God is cutting a covenant with Abram. But this covenant has a twist. It isn't like the normal covenants of Abram's day. In those covenants, it was the weaker party who walked in between the pieces. The stronger party was being very gracious. They were saying, I'm willing to take a promise from you, but I need some insurance that that promise is actually meaning something. So you have to walk through these pieces, calling down on yourself this self-maledictory oath. You have to give me a reason to believe you. God's taken that, what everybody in Abram's day understood, and he's turned it upside down. 
Abram isn't walking through the pieces on his own. Abram isn't even in there walking with God, promising to do all of his pieces in order to keep his part of the bargain. Instead, Abram is outside. He has no part in this bargain. He still is part of the covenant. God is making the covenant with him, but his only thing that he's doing is he's watching. Who's inside the pieces? doing all the hard work, calling down curses on himself should he fail to keep his promise. It's God. God is saying, on my life, I will make this happen. If I fail to give your descendants this land, if I fail to give you descendants, if I should fail to give you a son, if I fail to make you a great nation, a nation that will bless all the nations, if I fail to bring about the Messiah, if I fail to protect and reward you, not just now, but for all of eternity, then may I be broken in half and my blood poured out on the ground. May I be destroyed. God wants a relationship with you. He wants it so badly that he promises that he will make it happen or he'll destroy himself. And he makes that promise even when he knows that it will destroy him. He already knew as he passed between the pieces how much it was going to cost to rescue you. Jesus would have to give up his life, pay for my sins to pay for your sins. And God knew that. God knew that Jesus would be torn apart, that whips would slice open his back, that thorns would cut into his head, nails would be driven into his hands and his feet, spear into his side. He'd be torn apart. His blood would be poured out, and he knew that was coming. The only way to guarantee you an eternal future was to be torn apart. So on that day, over 4,000 years ago from today, he double-promised his own death. He backed himself into a corner that he could not get out of. He promised Abram, that he himself would be torn apart for Abram and for you if he failed to be torn apart for Abram and for you. Do you see how much he loves you? Do you see how much he wants you? That should be you walking in between the pieces, vowing something to God that you absolutely could not make yourself keep. You should be promising that you will love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You should be promising, I will honor you, I will cherish you. And then you should be paying the penalty because you just couldn't keep that vow. And God doesn't let you. He pays instead. That's why you can trust him. God pays more sacrifices more than you ever could. If his plan costs him that much, it's got to be a great plan. It's a plan that you actually want to be part of, and you want to be part of that so badly, it doesn't matter what road he plans out for you. How do you trust someone who doesn't give you the life that you always wanted? How do you trust someone who gives you the life that you never wanted? You look at what he volunteers to do for you, and you look at what he refuses to let you do. You look at him, 
And you ask yourself, how could I not trust someone like that? Let's turn to him now.